All right, well, grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Don, after four weeks, I finally remembered to turn it on. So there you go. It's only taken me four weeks. Luke chapter 1, we are done with our study of the biography, the life, and times of David. And uh, we are wanting to, to uh, be in Christmas, look at the Christmas story. We'll start here in Luke chapter 1, page 902 of your pew Bibles, 902. Jason, I see what you're saying about the balance, but what's happened here right in the middle? I don't know. Some of you all are moving around to throw me off, and I don't much appreciate it. I mean, I get why Miss Ann's over here. She's hiding from Irma Jean, but the rest of you, I don't know. I don't know. All right. How about you stand with me out of reverence for God's Word? We'll, we'll read verses 5 to 25. The evangelist Luke writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the Lord angel rather said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will hear you will, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. He will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts and the fathers of the children to the disobedient, to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their times. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when, they, when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And these days, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my approach among people. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, may you, as always, open our hearts. We would receive your word, our mind that we would understand it, our eyes that we would see your glory, our ears we would hear and heed, our mouths we would speak the truths of the gospel, and our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience. What, a, what an important story this is. At times we take it for granted because this is the sort of thing we do every uh, year this time. But let us not lose the hope that is found within these words. Transform us for your kingdom and your glory. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. May be seated. Do we have anybody here who is a middle child? Okay, I just need to know who is going to need the most counseling moving forward. Uh, 
I'm the youngest child. I had a great childhood <laughs> at your great expense. Well, my brother is a middle child. That explains so much about him. He's coming in, I believe, this Friday. I hope he worships at my parents' church on the following Sundays. But nevertheless, he's coming in. And every year on August 12th, he will post something in celebration of Middle Child Day. Do you know that was a holiday? <laughs> the younger ones, we, we didn't know that, nor did we care. In fact, mom and dad said we didn't have to go to the celebration. So that's just kind of way, way way we like it. But in typical middle child uh, 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 fashion, he doesn't celebrate it. He uses it to complain like all middle children do. They complain about everything. They complain that they're a middle child. And they just whine and complain. You, you, you older ones know exactly what it is. You know, you know what it's like to have a difficult childhood. The middle child is just a whiner. You, you know. And we younger ones, we're the favorite by default because they finally got it right with us, right? Well, every year he'll post something. His most favorite meme on August 12th is this. Happy Middle Child Day. If you didn't remember, don't worry, no one ever does. Well, again, he doesn't celebrate it. He, like a typical middle child, bemoans the fact he is a middle child. Well, let me make a quick confession to you. For 14 years, I've been in a preaching ministry. For 14 years, I, I plan out my sermons at the first of the year, like really the end of the year, and I think, oh man, what are we going to do about Christmas? I don't know if you know this, but in terms of the nativity stories, only four chapters of the Bible, and every year we have to talk about those four chapters of the Bible, and eventually you kind of run out of ideas. We've even gone outside those four chapters of the Bible. We've looked at Old Testament passages. I believe my first year here, we did the prophecies of the nativity. In fact, one year we spent seven weeks on the last seven sayings of Jesus because I couldn't think of anything else for Christmas we hadn't already done. Fourteen years I've, I've had to preach in ministry. And all 14 of those years, you've got to come up with something different. This year I discovered, like my brother thinks, being having overlooked by, by everyone else, there is an entire part of the nativity story I have for 14 years completely overlooked. Did you know that in the nativity story of Jesus, there is another birth narrative? Now, you and I know about the story of John the Baptist, but how often do we really look at the birth of John the Baptist in the context of Christmas? I didn't even think about this until a year ago. I sat in a Bible study uh, where someone explored the, the, the birth narrative of John the Baptist and it hit me. He is like the middle child. He is the one, he's right there in the narrative, plays an important role in the nativity story, but we so often overlook it. What John the Baptist does is he bridges the Old Testament that was anticipating Christ with the New Testament, which tells us of the coming of Christ. He is the bridge. And thus, he is what prepares us for Christmas. That is the title of our series, is Preparing for Christmas. Let me, before we get into this text, give you a little bit of introduction here. I find this stuff fascinating. If you don't, just tone out for about 30 seconds here. By that, I mean two minutes. Um, in verse 3 of Luke 1, he tells us that he wanted to put things together in an orderly account, in an orderly fashion. Let me see if I can prove to you how well this gospel is written. The older I get, the more I appreciate just how well the Bible is written as a literary uh, art. Well, in Luke's telling of the nativity story, he loves the number 2. Loves the number 2. After all, it's two chapters, though originally it wasn't written in chapters. But consider this. There are two leaders we are introduced to immediately, Herod, 
the first and Zechariah the priest. There are two miraculous births, one of a closed womb due to age, the other a closed womb due to age, in that she is a virgin. There are first two-time parents who meet here, one on, on one end of the spectrum, one on the other. There is a birth told from the perspective of the biological father, that's Zechariah, one told from the perspective of the biological mother. There are two cousins, John and Jesus. There are two Psalms that are saying, uh, you'll see them here in, in chapter 1, that is Mary's Magnificat, the, the Latin, and Zechariah's Benedictus. Eventually, the two mothers will meet, whereby the two cousins, we are told, meet in the wombs. And finally, there are two presentations at the temple. When Jesus is born in Luke chapter 2, they go to the temple. We meet Anna and we meet Simeon. I doubt Anna could play the piano as well as our Anne, don't you think? What do you think, Ms. Irma Jean? Do you agree with that? <laughs> I don't know. We'd have to hear her play. That's what she said over there. Well, with that said, let's look at... Uh, this passage. Let's start here, verses 5 to 7, with an unexpected couple. Notice there in, the, in verse 5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Remember, we've already noted, noted the, the duality here. One is king, the other is a priest. And let's start there with, with the king. The narrative opens up with a character that plays a little significant role in our, our passage here. Really, from Luke's account, doesn't play a major role in Matthew's account, of course. He, tr he kills, tries to kill uh, all the babies and the wise men visit with him. However, what Luke does for us here is he puts the, the narrative in a historical context. Herod is known as Herod the so-called great. We call him that because he gave himself that title. Now, can I pick a title for myself? You can start calling me that, right? Uh, uh, I'll, I'll give you a list and let you vote on it later. But, but he's really Herod the first king, the text says there, over Judah. Now, Herod was not a good guy. One commentator describes him as capable, crafty, and cruel. All three are adequate descriptions. He was a capable king, after all. Uh, he renovated the, the, the temple. Remember that Solomon's temple was destroyed. It was later built uh, under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Under Herod, it, it was renovated and became a magnificent building. You may recall when Jesus uh, uh, knocks over temple tables. They asked, who do you think you are? Uh, they said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Well, it didn't. It took 46 years to renovate the temple. Now, can you imagine that series on the HD the TV, the Garden Channels, I like to call it? You talk, that's a 46-season show, and you ladies would tune in for every episode if the husband is funny enough. But nevertheless, he, he renovated the temple. He, he built the Fortress Basada, which is an important strategic place for Israel at this time and, and, and for him. But he was also very cruel. His cruelty is evident, of course, in the murder of the innocents in Matthew chapter 2, uh, those in Bethlehem. But he was particularly cruel to his own family members, especially his sons. He had murdered several of his sons out of fear that they were trying to take his throne from him. Caesar Augustus famously said, It is better to be Herod's pig. And remember, Herod's supposed to be a Jew. And pigs are unclean. It is better to be Herod's pig than to be one of his sons. Ultimately, however, Herod was a political puppet. 
His authority, though he is called a king, he's really more of a governor, much in the same way that Pontius Pilate will become one later in the narrative. His main job was to keep the peace of Judah and to collect taxes. Everything else Rome couldn't care about. So he went around as a puppet king who has self-appointed himself as great. And so long as he fulfilled those responsibilities, Rome couldn't care about anything else. Now contrast that, Herod, Zechariah. The powerful king who murdered his own sons to the priests who couldn't have any. Immediately we see this contrast. Zechariah means Yahweh has remembered. And this miraculous birth narrative is a reminder that God remembered his covenant with his people. And that God has not abandoned his people. And we discover about Zechariah, he is of the division of Abijah. And that traces his lineage all the way back to the time of David. Under the David, the priests were divided into 24 parts, and Abijah was one of them. And in fact, Abijah was the eighth of those. Now, Elizabeth, his wife, is of the tribe of, of Levi. The way, the way I think this is to be helpful for you, I was joking about this before service. Elizabeth is a pastor's daughter. And a pastor's wife, bless her heart. Can you imagine a lifelong of that? Good grief. I had a professor who, whose wife was a preacher's daughter, a preacher's wife, and, a, and a, like a preacher's mother. And she explained to, to all the men in her life, says, the day will come when you will have to bury me and you will have to do my funeral service. I want one thing at my funeral, one thing only, to be clear. I do not want anyone to preach. I have heard it all. And I don't need any more, right? And I, I, I sort of get that, right? I, I, I do, bless her heart. I mean, uh, being one of the others is bad enough, but to have all of that, my goodness, that is absolutely incredible. But you'll see here this humble couple in verse 6 are described as walking blamelessly in the law and the commandments of God. Yet, despite their godly character in verse 7, we discover they are barren. Their empty nest was not due to a modern personal preference, but a biological reality. They wanted to have children, but could not. And in the ancient world, marriage and children were not separated. They weren't distinct. You grew up, you got married, you had children. And those children would grow up, they would get married, and they would have children. Here they are, a couple dedicated to the Lord and the service of the Lord. Yet despite their righteousness, God has deemed them to be barren. And this would have brought with it great shame. In fact, in, 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 in uh, Genesis, we, we referenced this, uh, this, this past week. In Genesis 30, Rebekah would envied her sister Leah because Leah could get pregnant easily, but Rebekah couldn't. And notice the language. She goes up to her husband. Give me children or I shall die. No doubt that is a language of shame and guilt. And no doubt they continued to pray. And every month the pregnancy test would come back negative. Regardless of all of that, they remained 
faithful. This is an unexpected couple in the narrative. Not only that, but we see an unexpected announcement starting in verse 8 down to verse 23. Now, Zechariah, of course, is a priest, and, and the time comes he has to go down to the temple, and he is given the special privilege of going into uh, the temple to, to burn incense. Now, this is done twice daily, and there are so many priests in Israel at this time that they draw uh, the priest that has the honor to go in uh, twice a day by lots, and it is considered a very high honor. In fact, it's so high, most priests at this time never got the honor to do that. And so the fact he was called to do this was, was particularly special. And if you were uh, chosen to do this one day, you could never do it again. This is your one time, your one shot. It brings you right there on the edge to the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. He's going to walk into the temple. He's going to burn the incense, representing the, the, the people's prayers, and it represents his own prayers. Many like to debate, what is it that Zechariah was praying here? We can debate that till the cows come home. But no doubt we know that he has been praying for a child. And while he's fulfilling the sacred duty, he encounters an angel of God. His first reaction there, verse 12, is fear, of course. But the angel assures him, as uh, the same reaction will be of the shepherds later, that the angel has to assure them not to be afraid, but rather God has heard their prayers. Again, he's burning incense, which represents the prayers of the people of God going up to the throne of God. And, and, and the angel comes and says, good news. God has heard your prayers. God is going to answer your prayers on his timeline. And he says that, 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 that your wife will become pregnant. This will be a miraculous birth in the tradition of, 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 of others, right? And, and notice that his name is given. Not just choose any name for your family line, but rather his name has to be John. In the Bible, when God named someone, it is for a special calling. Abraham or Jacob or Solomon or later, as, as, as we'll see in the nativity story, Jesus. And you'll see he is called to be a Nazarite, verse 14 and 15. You will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. Notice the emphasis on joy there. He will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine. This is why we call him John the Southern Baptist, right? All right. Tough crap, tough crap. Anyway, so, um, or, or I know who drinks now. That's, that's what we've just discovered, okay? Yeah, you're all guilty. Come forward and repent later. What were we talking about? Oh, yeah, Jesus. And so, uh, he shall not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, which will come back later when he, when he meets Jesus in, in the womb. But this is part of the Nazarite vow, at least as, as I see it. Samson is the most famous of the Nazarites who had a lifelong covenant, right? Lifelong vow. And that is seen by growing the long hair. Well, the emphasis for Samson was the long hair and also the, the not drinking alcohol and, and touching dead animals, which he breaks all those, of course. John, the emphasis is, is on the alcohol, but it is assumed all the other requirements are part of this vow, which is why we see John the Baptist as a dude wandering around the wilderness with long hair and not, dare I say, John the son of the Baptist in a three-piece suit, okay? <laughs> That's just, and he eats locusts and not fried chicken, so I don't know if we should call him a Southern Baptist or not. 
But nevertheless, he he is commissioned here by the angel to prepare the way of the Messiah. He will go before them, in verse 17, in spirit and power of Elijah. So connected to Samson, he's connected to Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, to disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So here it is. How will he prepare the people? He will prepare them by calling them to repentance. Remember, he is the son of a priest. He has the job of a priest, yet not ceremonial, but he's appointed him the Christ. Now, what Zechariah does is he expresses his doubts. He understands biology. Elizabeth is beyond the age of conceiving. Can I add just a footnote here? This is, this is free. You're probably not going to get out early. That's okay. You're used to that by now. Both the births of John the Baptist and Jesus mirror each other. They're both the same miracle. We talk a lot about the virgin birth. Mary's ability to conceive as a virgin is as possible as Elizabeth's ability to conceive past her ability of childbearing. It's the same miracle. The difference is age, but it's the same miracle. The same power it took to open Mary's wound is the same power that it would take to open Elizabeth's. These are special births. Regardless, notice there what the angel says uh, to him in verse 19. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Remember where Zechariah is. He is in one sense near the presence of God there in the temple. And I was sent to speak to you to bring you this gospel, to bring you this good news. Regardless that due to Zechariah's hesitancy, he is made mute. Some see that as a death. He's also dead because he's making hand signals. And it's, it's possible, very possible, the two are often associated with each other in the ancient world even today. But what is ironic is Zechariah's muteness is the way in which the Lord declares he has spoken. You see that in the text? This, this is the, really the irony of it. Remember that God has been silent in Israel for 300 years. Malachi and his colleagues are dead. It has been 300 years. They have weathered the Persians. They have weathered the Greeks. And they're trying to weather the Romans. And God has not spoken a word. Three centuries of silence. And it isn't until a priest walks out from the presence of God, mute, The people hear the voice of God. Isn't that incredible? It's absolutely incredible. God speaks through Zechariah's silence. Let us look finally at the unexpected hope. Verses 24 to 25. They return home, or Zechariah returns home. And she becomes pregnant. And she keeps to herself for five months. There's some debate as to that. I I suspect it's because she wants the evidence to be uh, prevalent. You know, she doesn't want to be six weeks along and say, by the way, I'm pregnant because no one's going to believe her. After five months, they're going to believe her, right? But the text doesn't tell us. Notice her statement in verse 25. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my approach away from the people. I think there's a double meaning there. After all, Luke loves his twos. One, this is the end of Elizabeth's reproach. Remember what we said is that children are associated 
with God's blessing. Be fruitful and multiply, God told Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, God told Noah and his wife. Children are associated with the blessings of God. Even when Israel were slaves in Egypt, they were blessed because they had children. If only I could think of an application to our current times right now to that. Here's Elizabeth. She's following all the rules. She goes to church every Sunday, and even on Wednesday, she's a super Christian. She, she prays regularly. She reads her Bible. She never misses a daily bread. She does everything right, and yet God has robbed her of a blessing. But on this day, that ends. But it isn't just about Elizabeth we need to see here. It's not just the end of her reproach. This is the end of Israel's reproach. The birth of John, as we saw, is the end of God's silence. Israel is once again about to be delivered. God's deliverance here is not political. As the opening scene might imply, this was the day of Herod. It is spiritual. It is the day of the king, the true son of David. John the Baptist would not pick up a sword, but he will announce the coming of a king, the coming of a kingdom. If, if you're still trekking with us and, and you think, well, this story sounds familiar. I've read a story like this. In fact, it, it, it just, it's almost parallel. You, you would be right. Throughout the Bible, there are miraculous births, Samson, Samuel, Isaac, and others. What's unique about the nativity story, there are two miraculous births within months of each other. But, but there's one account that is almost perfectly parallel. And that story is the story of Abraham and Sarah and the conception of Isaac. Can I show you some of these parallels? First, the elderly conceive. Abraham was like 100 years old when he became uh, uh, the father of Isaac. Secondly, both Abraham and Sarah, Zechariah and Elizabeth, are described as walking blamelessly. Here's your evidence in Genesis 17.1. Thirdly, both couples receive the news of a miraculous conception from a heavenly visitor. Fourthly, one spouse believes the announcement. Abraham believed Elizabeth believed. One spouse did not. You remember that Sarah laughed at the notion she would become pregnant. And as a result, I, the, her son's name is Isaac, which means laughter. All right? So God is having the last laugh. That's basically the point of the story. And of course, Zechariah didn't believe, and he is made mute. Interesting, Zechariah quotes the Abrahamic Story. Compare uh, Luke 1.18, I am an old man, my wife, or how shall I know this? My, I am an old man, my wife is advanced in years. With Genesis, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? If you read in the Greek and Hebrew, it's almost verbatim the same thing. Zechariah knows if this is true, it is the same story as that of Abraham, his father. Sixthly and finally, Elizabeth rejoices with her neighbors regarding the good news, Luke 1.58 as does Sarah, Genesis 21. This is their version of a pregnancy announcement. Going to get all the girls together to talk about how excited they are there's going to be a baby. They're going to be a mom. 
Compare Luke 1.58. Um, her neighbors and relatives heard the Lord has shown great mercy and they rejoice. Genesis 21, Sarah said, God has made my laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Same story. Do you think that's on purpose? Don't you think it's on purpose? All the time in the Bible, the same narrative is repeated with different characters in a different setting, but it's still the same narrative. This, this is no different. And throughout Scripture, miraculous conceptions foreshadow a special work of God in the unfolding of the drama of Scripture. And the drama of Scripture is how God comes down to redeem man in order to dwell with them. This is no different. In Luke's gospel, there are two births, John and Jesus. One is a descendant of Aaron, thus a priest. The other is a descendant of David, thus a king. Now go back with me to verse 5, right where this narrative begins. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah. You see it? Is it coming clear? There is a king but he's not the real king. He's not even a son of David. He's a puppet upon a throne. What we need is a true and better David. What we need is the true king of Israel to come. Oh, that he would come. But while Herod was on his throne, Zechariah was in the temple. You see, as we'll discover, is that although Zechariah and Elizabeth were blameless, most of the priests weren't. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they were corrupt and Jesus will confront them so much so that they will crucify him. However, the good news is before the king comes, the people will be made ready. The job of the priest was to cleanse that which had become unclean, to clear out that which had become corrupted. And in walks John, repents. The king is coming. So that when the king comes, he takes upon himself not a throne given to him by Rome, but a cross given to him by God. And in this narrative, we are given the first hints. A true and better priest has come for the people of Israel. Repent, be cleansed. But more than that, a true and better king is coming. Repent and follow after him. This is why Gabriel will announce, this is good news. At the heart of Christmas is the good news of Jesus. A true and better priest has come, let us be cleansed. A true and better king has come, let us follow him and enter his kingdom. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as you